conflicted and, and ambivalent about marriage, right? I mean, is there a day that goes by that there's not some a news item or, or conversation that, that we overhear where the whole issue of marriage is uh, being you know, bounced back and forth? And the fact that less and less people are, are getting married and more and more people are getting divorced and more and more people are choosing sort of optional alternate kinds of marital arrangements may make you think that, wow, marriage is on its way out, right? It's, all the statistics say that. Uh, there's a, a study, a 15-year study among college students that I came across that was published in the Journal of Sex and Education Therapy. And to, to everyone's surprise, this 15-year study of college students, millennials, said 93 to 96% of them want to get married eventually. So how do you account for this you know, strange dichotomy? And what do we do? with the idea of marriage. You know, is it an anachronism? Is it like a relic from the past that it's time to be done with? Uh, is, it, is it something that's an, an, an oppressive institution? Uh, you know, is it a, a, a destructive institution? Is, is it too risky for people to really venture into? Well, I think one of the, the most difficult things to, to come to is just the idea of what, what is marriage. And I, I titled this talk today, because it's taken from a, one text in the book of Hebrews. I titled it, Why Value Marriage? And in Hebrews 13.4, let me, let me read this to you. It's a, I chose it because it's a very simple but, but characteristic statement about marriage that I think, I think without any doubt, you could summarize what the Bible says about marriage in this statement. And this is consistent with, with what the Bible says about marriage from the beginning of the Bible and the story of Genesis to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and everything in between. Here's what it says. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge adultery and sexual immorality. This passage was written to a group of people that were no less conflicted about marriage than we are today. If you read in, in the ancient world, what in the first century, what people thought about marriage, they had as, as broad an idea and as many practices of marriage as we have today. In fact, maybe in some ways, people had a, a, an even more negative idea of marriage than in certain quarters than we do today. And yet this letter was written, Hebrew was written to, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who had a, a, a very exalted idea of what marriage was. They were super committed to it, Hebrews. Jewish people in general stood out in that particular time as people who had a very consistent high view of marriage, a very well-defined view that they had held from the earliest days of their history up to this point and, and through today. Because it had been, it was a view of marriage that was nurtured in their sacred writings and in God speaking with them and working with them. And so they had this whole sense that this is what marriage is, this is what we've experienced, and we're going to pass this on. And they were very focused about passing on this understanding of marriage. And the, the point of this passage is he says, the writer says, whoever he or she was, says marriage should be honored by everyone. And what that's stating is that's, that's expressing this idea that God's people held throughout all of history that Marriage was this good, it was a good in and of itself that God had given us. It was instituted by God. It was something good that had a benefit wherever it was embraced and practiced. They were saying that 
They were being encouraged. You know, there, there are influences around you that want to subvert your idea of the value of this institution. And yet, it is infinitely precious in and of itself. And that, because that's what the word honor, to honor something in the Greek word, in the Greek text that our English translations come from, to honor something means to, to hold it as something precious, something extremely valuable. And so the writer here is saying, certainly you Hebrews who are reading this letter should value marriage the way you've been taught, the way you've seen the history of your people, and now as a follower of Jesus who himself embraced and taught that same value. I'm going to I want to show you four reasons why you should value marriage. They're, they're real simple reasons. They're, they're really bound up in the definition of marriage. If you, and you can't go to a page in the Bible and find a prophet saying, this is the definition of marriage. It, it's, it's how it's taught and lived throughout Scripture. Over and over and over, there's these elements to marriage that are consistent. Now, I will tell you, without any doubt, there were lots of different kinds of marriage in the Bible. There was polygamy in the Bible. There was uh, divorce all through the Bible. There was fooling around in marriage. There was, I mean, it, this, this book is very real to life. It, it, it's, there's nothing going on in here uh, that you won't see going on today. Their experience, uh, their slice of human life is exactly parallel to ours. So when I, want to talk, when I talk about marriage today, I want, to, I want to make three distinctions, though, before I get into those, those four reasons why we should value marriage. Number one is, when you talk about marriage, or, or any subject like this, I want to distinguish between ethics this is a, a Boston College professor made this distinction and I thought it was brilliant, so I've, I, I've held it in my mind. Because when we talk about a subject, there's three distinctions about that subject that intermingle together and make it hard to focus on the subject in a particular way. There's the ethics, which is what is God's will about that? Then there's the pastoral care aspect of that subject, which is how do we handle and relate to those that don't live up to God's ideal? Then there's public policy, which is how do Christians in a pluralistic world advocate for a moral position that they believe is right in a community that doesn't share their beliefs? Because don't let people around you say that uh, you can't bring religion into public policy. All public policy is someone's morality, isn't it? And you, you can derive your morality from an ancient faith, or you can derive it from your own personal preferences. But don't tell me that my values don't have place in the public square. What, what privileges your atheistic values above mine? That's a faith, isn't it? You just have no faith. And don't say you base it on science. God, Lord have mercy, science is giving us some of the best things in the world and some of the worst things in the world in history. So, you know, let's at least be clear about that. So I'm not trying to go into public policy. I'm not trying to go into pastoral care. I'm just going to talk about the, from the ethical perspective of why should we value marriage. So first of all, marriage uh, has this power to provide prof just profound mutual care between a husband and a wife. It, it, it's the possibilities of marriage in that respect are, uh, are you know, long ago appreciated. And so let me give you a definition. Don't try to write this down. Uh, it's, it's too long. We'll have these notes on the, on the website if you want to look at it later. Marriage is the divinely instituted covenantal union of one man and one woman, publicly acknowledged, permanently sealed, and physically consummated, designed for mutual care, 
the nurturing of children for character growth and a living testimony of God's grace. So let me repeat that. Marriage is the divinely instituted covenantal union of one man and one woman, publicly acknowledged, permanently sealed, and physically consummated, designed for mutual care, the nurturing of children, for character growth, and a living testimony to God and His grace. And that last one, that's the last point we'll look at today. So, this understanding, as I said before, is, is found, and I'm not going to try to track it for you, from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's the single understanding of the Bible about marriage. Again, not that it doesn't describe other uh, uh, expressions of human relationships, but it holds out without any doubt that this is what God's ideal is. And like the book of Genesis, you may read that and think, I don't see a lot of that in the book of Genesis in the patriarchs' lives. Because the most of the, yeah, I'd say, except for Isaac, all the patriarchs uh, seem to have more than one wife. And so you look at that and say, well, is that God's ideal? You're just saying God's ideal is one, you know, as, from a man's viewpoint, one life, one wife. How come that doesn't square with the patriarchs? Well, the writer of Genesis was, was a brilliant writer. And what the writer of Genesis did was he subverted polygamy, which was the common practice of that era in history, by showing all the trouble that came when you reject God's ideal, which is one man and one woman for life. And every one of the patriarchs, their lives were just total chaos. It didn't paint a pretty picture of marriage, but it started with this ideal that God made human beings and saw marriage as this institution that he gave them that had a, a good attached to it. And it was, a, as, as one person said, it was there, there is this space between a man and a woman that commit their lives together that becomes a sacred space in which God dwells and then good flows out of that. Now, in, the, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about can you be single and be fulfilled if marriage is held in such high esteem? Does that mean we're all second class if we're single? No, not at all. In fact, the gospel has a lot to say about that. It doesn't make marriage the ideal. Because we see Jesus, who never married, and he is the ideal person. So Jesus, as Paul taught, broke new ground in the world's viewpoint and, reality, and its expression of, of life and said that single people can be as fulfilled as married people, that it's possible. So we're going to explore that in a couple of weeks. So... The heart of marriage, though, is where one person finds fulfillment through self-giving, sacrificial love. Where, not, I'm sorry, not just one person, not just wives. <laughs> They're called to all the self-giving, sacrificial love. And the husbands are all called to the receiving of that. No. <laughs> that is the ancient view in certain respects. God never meant it to be that way. But... His idea is this mutual care where both people focus on we and not me. It, it is what is called a commitment-based relationship versus a convenience-based relationship. Those are radically different things. Now, marriage is this societal and personal good. So the mutual care part of marriage is rich. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just going to, I'm going to tick off some studies. I'm going to read them to you, so I'm going to try not to, to go into the particulars. Uh, in 2005, Cornell University released a study that showed that being married is associated with higher self-esteem a greater life satisfaction, greater happiness, and less distress. Uh, the National Marriage Project is a, uh, a think tank at the University of Virginia, which is a you know, pretty prestigious institution. And <clears throat> they uh, produced a report a year or two ago that demonstrated that marriage is a wealth-generating institution. All other things being equal. In other words, as they 
went through their research and evaluated people and, and factored out the level of education, where the, you know, the, the, their family of origin, all these different factors, the kind of job that they had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they found was, on the whole, about marriage was this. 75%, excuse me, the never married are 75% less wealthy than their continuously married peers. Now, that's not just because of two incomes. That's just looking at a person. Two people are not necessarily wealthier than one. Cohabitors generally are 58% lower in financial wealth than those who are married. And those who divorce and never remarry have a 72% lower amount in wealth. The National Marriage Project suggests that those with better financial prospects are not necessarily more likely to marry, but the institution of marriage itself provides a wealth generation bonus. Nobel-winning economist George Akerlof has explained the pro-social influence of marriage upon men and fathers. So let's just talk about men. Married men, he says, are more attached to the labor force. They have less substance abuse. They commit less crime and are less likely to become the victims of crime. They have better health and are less accident-prone. I'm encouraged about that, (laughs) personally. He found cohabitation was incapable of providing these benefits, he said, because this is, this is his quote. Men settle down when they get married, and if they fail to get married, they tend to fail to settle down. That people have known for millennia that, that marriage tends to civilize men in unique ways. It, they go on. I can, my wife would tell you that. Uh, and settle down men, here's the results of their research. They work more, earn more, save more, and spend more money on their families than on themselves. Married men are also dramatically less likely to abuse their wives and children than men of any other relational status. Marriage boosts the well-being, now and to summarize their report, marriage boosts the well-being of women as well in nearly every important measure of well-being. So women and men come out way ahead. That marriage is a good. It's a good that to our society, it's good to individuals. Now, they said after controlling for differences in education, race, ethnicity, regional unemployment, and scores on a test of general knowledge... Men who are married work about 400 hours more per year than their single peers with equivalent backgrounds. They also work more strategically. One Harvard study found that married men are much less likely than their single peers, listen to this, to quit their current job unless they had lined up another job. Single guys who live in their parents' basement like to do that. (laughs) Married men don't are less likely to do that. I don't want to say they don't because I've pastored people for a long time and I can just tell you that married guys can do that too, but they tend to do it less than the single guys who live in their parents' basement. So this translates into a substantial marriage premium for men. On average, young married men aged 28 to 30 make $15,900 more than their single peers. And married men aged 44 to 46 make 18,800 more than their single peers. What's more, the marriage premium operates for black, Hispanic, and less educated men in the same way it does for men in general. Do you hear that? That race has no factor in this. If you're married, you're more likely to make more money, all things being equal, for your job as a man than your single peers will. What accounts for that? Well, I'm contending that marriage plays some significant factor in that. Now, Bill Galston, who's a senior fellow at Brookings. Now, you guys, how many of you know what the Brookings Institute is? Okay, it's another think tank. It's a liberal think tank. And sometimes liberalism is, is associated with not being friendly towards traditional marriage and traditional family. No, that's not necessarily true. 
the Brookings Institute, and he, uh, Bill Galston was the, he's a senior fellow, he's a researcher. He was also uh, a domestic policy advisor for President Clinton. And here's what he said. He said that an American today must only do three things to avoid living in poverty. If you don't want to live in poverty today, according to this guy's research, he says all you have to do is do these three things. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, marry before having a child. Number three, have children after the age of 20. Only 8% of people who do these three things are poor. Whereas 79% of the people who do those things are in poverty. Those are stunning statistics. From what some conservatives would say, an institution, Brookings Institution, which is not friendly to traditional marriage. But facts are facts. Marriage is a good. It brings good to us personally. It brings good to society. It adds value. Whether the people believe in God or not, surprise to hear in the church. So, the greatest threats to, to marriage, the greatest threats to marriage, and, and I want you guys to, to pay attention here. The greatest threats, threat to marriage today, there's threats, is not same-sex marriage. It's not civil unions. Do you understand that? That's what, we, that's what those of us who are conservative, we hear that all the time. Oh my gosh, same-sex marriage is going to sink America. It's not. Now I think it, legally it's creating complications that are, that are making it difficult for marriage to be valued. But if homosexual, self-identified, same-sex attracted people are a tiny sliver of our population. The greatest threats to marriage are divorce by all the straight people, cohabitation, and what uh, one writer called the commodification of sex. So let's, let's do that in reverse. I'm not gonna, I think divorce is self-evidently bad. I don't think we have to Look at that. And I know that there's the, Bible, there, 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 there's, the Bible has a lot to say about divorce. Mostly it says it's not a, a good thing. Mostly it says that there should be less of it and not more of it. But it says that in a broken, fallen world, where broken, fallen people marry, there are going to be times where divorces are necessary and even appropriate. But it's less and not more. It's, you know... Depending on the statistics, it's 40 plus percent of the people that get married. First, second, third, fourth time, they get divorced. And there's lots of bad outcomes that come from divorce. Let's just leave it at that. Cohabitation, same thing. Next week, we're going to do a talk, Lord willing, on 10 myths that people believe about relationships and sex. And all these 10 myths come from uh, social science studies. And I'll, I'll explain all that next week. But cohabitation is, has, there's all these myths around cohabitation that are foolish for us to believe. I think, though, that the, the most dangerous societal activity is the commodification of sex. So what, what does that mean, commodification? commodification of sex. It's where we take sex and we, we, we remove it from God's purpose and his context in marriage and we make it like Starbucks coffee. You go, well, that's a stretch. How do you do that? Well, what is, what level of commitment do we really have to Starbucks if you go to Starbucks? Maybe you go to Seattle's Best, Cup of Joe, wherever you go, right? Uh, maybe you, you know, you, you make your coffee at home. Grow your own beans, you know, the whole nine yards. Because uh, it's like all the micro brewers that are out there for beer now, people are like that with their coffee. It's like, I guess you got, we've got more and more time on our hands, we've got to find something to do with it. So 
how do we commodify sex like we do with Starbucks? Well, the only commitment you have to Starbucks is that price and is it good coffee. If, it's, if they raise the price too much or the coffee starts becoming inferior, you move on. That is largely the attitude that many people in our culture have today about sex. Is it, does it give me the pleasure I want? Is it as good as I want? And as, as soon as those two key metrics drop below a certain point, especially for guys, that's it. I'm moving on. And sometimes guys have moved on before they have, they move on and they let their partner know. Because they have commodified sex. But see, marriage is God's purpose for sex. You have to understand it. When we think of sex, most people just sort of boil it down to rules. Don't do this, do do that. But, but that, is, that is to misunderstand the purpose of it. What, what's God's point in sex? What is it all about? Now, we could talk quite a while about that because it's a profound subject. But let me try to say it briefly. If we look at sex as merely something about self-gratification and my pleasure and my enjoyment, not that that's not part of it, but if that's a heart of how we look at it, we have commodified it. We've made it something that's just, a, it's, it's, a, it's about a product that we're, we're enjoying to, with someone else. And over the course of millennia, we've learned as human beings that our lives work best, our society works best when our closest relationships are commitment-based relationships and not commodity-based relationships. Do you understand? It's common sense. And so marriage is a commitment-based relationship in which sex was supposed to be enjoyed after I gave you everything I have and I take on all your debts and you give me everything you have and you take on all my debts and we've totally committed our lives to one another, the publicly and legally, then we seal that commitment sexually. We are meant to have naked bodies and naked hearts. But today we have naked bodies, but not naked hearts. And as Rick Warren said, uh, there's no such thing as safe sex unless people create and invent a condom for the heart. Because you're committing something of yourself. Something transacts that's very vulnerable and very self-disclosing and open. And when that person uh, pu you know, pulls that bond apart, it's very painful. And you may say that that is just what happens between the uh, two people in private, and so nothing that happens in private is anybody else's business. I mean, let's be realistic here. Everything we do in private becomes public at some point. Who we are in private becomes public. You cannot hide who you are. It will inevitably come out and it will inevitably affect everyone around you. And, you know, we live in a society that values personal rights. I don't want to go into public policy too far. I just want you to, you have to realize that privacy has a place, but we are a community. We're a community. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, or whether we like it or not, we are. And everything we are in our character affects everyone around us. What we do in private affects everyone around us. You may think it doesn't. It does. And so the bonding that is envisioned by God, the relational glue that sexual intimacy provides to a commitment-based relationship, when a re all relationships become commodity-based and there's just connect, disconnect, connect, disconnect, we just leave parts of ourselves everywhere. And what it inevitably does is it, 
waters down our ability to commit to other people, and it waters down our ability to be willing to trust other people. It waters down our ability to form communities which rely on trust. If at the most essential part of ourselves we're broken because we've, we've just given ourselves and, and people have taken and given and taken and, and there's no stability there, we're going to bring that into every relationship. And it costs everybody. It really does. There's no escaping that. You can't see our society today and see the, the problems in every part of our society as this commodification of sex gets more and more widespread, more and more accepted, more and more celebrated, and not see that there's a connection there. Now, it's hard to say no. It's hard to deny yourself the things that you desire. But we all acknowledge there's lots of twisted things that can get in our hearts. Where do you draw the line? You know, the wisdom that comes from the Bible says that we have to draw a line around sex and, and sexual intimacy and confine it to a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Because the good that's there is good for everybody. And I'll show you in a second, it's good for children on top of that. So at the end of this passage, I read it, and some of you may have, when I read it, <gasps> took, took a deep breath as you heard it. But let me say it again. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. If you read that passage in the original Greek, the last word in that sentence is God. And what it's saying is, when it uses two words, two, two Greek words that, are, that, that cover the, all the ground of sexual expression. It says, if you have sex when you're married with someone who's not your spouse, you're going to have bad outcomes from God, both now and in the future. If you embrace sexual intimacy outside marriage, you're going to have bad outcomes both now and in the future from God. That God has an interest in all this stuff working well for all of us. And as I want to show you here, for children, because marriage, the second good is marriage is uniquely powerful for nurturing children. Uh, I'm going to, I'll go through this quick. Uh, there's no better framework for children to nurture to be nurtured and to flourish than marriage. Isabel Sawhill, who's the co-director on children, a center on children and families at the Brookings Institute, another one, Brookings Institute study, she said the proliferation of single-parent households accounts for virtually all the increase in child poverty since the early 1970s. And Bill Galston, who I've mentioned before, uh, contributed this study with her. Uh, here's another one. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine had an article I came across uh, by W. Bradford Wilcox, who's the director of the Marriage Project at, at UVA, University of Virginia. Adolescents raised in intact married homes are significantly more likely to, to succeed educationally and financially. The benefits are greatest for less privileged homes. Now listen to this for a second. What their studies found was the benefits that kids getting raised in intact homes where they're raised by the mother and their biological mother and father for their whole life the benefit for those kids is greatest in the least privileged households you understand what I, what he means by that the poorer and the less it's socially advantaged the household is the greater the impact it is on those children's lives, the positive impact. That's a pretty cool thing. In other words, God says, you may be stuck in a home that has less financial base. You may be in a neighborhood that is a more challenging neighborhood to live in. Poor schools, more unemployment, etc., etc., higher crime. The families who raise kids, whose children who were raised in the home of both biological parents in lower income areas like I just described, 
experience a greater impact, a greater positive financial impact long term than the kids who are raised in upper middle class and upper class homes by their biological parents. That's what Wilcox's studies show. Now that's an amazing thing. That's a cool thing. It's saying that one of the greatest things we can do for kids who are in poverty is support marriage in those neighborhoods. Because those kids are going to be advantaged in a way that they can't generate on their own. You know, all the rags to riches stories where a kid decides he's going to, you know, uniquely press through all these difficulties and make it. That doesn't happen very often, but it happens more often when they're raised by both parents. This is what the social research says. And he says they are more likely to graduate from college, experience better work opportunities, lower odds of unemployment, and enjoy a substantial wage premium. Surprisingly, the economic benefits of marriage, the marriage bump is strongest among families where the parents didn't go to college. They are more likely to get and stay married and not father a child out of wedlock and to perform better across every economic and social metric there is. Marriage is good. Marriage should be honored. Marriage should be held. And I'm not going to go into the, the uh, character improvement part, but that's one of the, the, the best points about why we should value marriage is what it does for us in terms of improving our character. Our society says... You need to think about me. More about me and less about we, because who's going to think about me if you don't? But Jesus said over and over and over, if you commit to a life of self-giving, sacrificial love, you will come out better in the end and, and all the measures. You'll be more, and in fact, you will be more fulfilled than you could be if you chased after me all the time. If everything was about me, you're less likely to be happy at the end of that road than you are if you begin to live for we on a consistent basis. And there's, there's really no better way to live for we than in marriage unless you have really close friendships, which we'll talk about that in terms of single people. But when you have to live with someone and you get into it under the Clear, with the clear understanding that this is about we and not just about me, and you live in that furnace and you really lean into it, you will change as a person. You will change in ways, you will get to places you could never get on your own. Because of just the, the, the unrelenting 24-hour-a-day nature of marrying someone who you thought you knew, who in reality is a stranger. You thought you knew that person. You thought you vetted them. You looked at their credit report. Some of you did that, right? Uh, I'm hearing some nervous laughs. I think that happened here. Somehow you got their, their personal information. You checked it out. I know people have done that. Not people with a lot of money. But when you married them, you found out they were still different. And every day of their life, they're going to change and become different. And that is, that is God's refining furnace for us. Because the greatest gift he can give us is for us to grow as people. And not grow in being irresponsible, but growing being responsible people. Loving people, caring people, patient people, thoughtful people. Hardworking, self-disciplined people. That's the good of marriage. That's why it should be held in honor by everybody. This definition of marriage. No, I know, we're not getting to the social policy thing. See, when I say that, I feel it. I, here's what I feel coming back from you, and it may just be my thing, is, what? That, that's so archaic. That's so regressive, what you're saying, John. Don't you, we don't want to be those kind of people. But the research says we should be those kind of people. It's foolish not to honor marriage. It is costing our kids. It's costing future generations. Each generation, there's this erosion of social capital that we're burning through. And kids who don't have the ability to change the circumstances into which they are brought into the world and raised, 
we can stand alongside them and their families and say, we want to help you. We want to support you. We want your marriages to work. We want to help young people get into marriages in the right way. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are constantly facing this unrelenting, negative construction, a negative attitude towards the traditional view of marriage. Last week, I was reading and thinking about this, and I stumbled across a, uh, a debate between uh, two professors in uh, Idaho, at the University of Idaho, right? Who would think something, a debate like what I'm going to describe? And, it, and the debate was about civil unions among same-sex people. Is it good for society? And actually, it's, which is interesting, uh, about 10 years ago, I got invited to debate a a law professor from Ohio State who was the, uh, he was the legal counsel for the Stonewall Union. And uh, because Rich Nathan couldn't go, they threw me into the lion's den. <laughs> Rich had to travel to England for something. So I went there, and the people were very polite. It was at the uh, University, Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, and, you know, Professor, I think it was Professor Whaley was his name, uh, Professor Whaley was, you know, very gracious to me afterwards. He, and you know, because I tried to present the case, and what I was surprised was how the people, you know, the people asked me some hard questions. So we had like a Q and A afterwards. But he said to me, he said, "I've never, uh, I've never debated a preacher about this that didn't quote from the Bible, and I didn't quote from the Bible once during the whole debate because I felt like he, I didn't need to. I don't, I didn't think anybody there would respect the point if I quoted the Bible." <laughs> Honestly, so why would I do that? But I watched this debate in University of Idaho, at the University of Idaho, between a, two believers, two people who profess faith in Jesus, and I believe, I, I believe they both did. One of them said, I believe that civil unions, uh, same-sex civil unions are good for society. Well, they were debating the point. Is it good for society? One said yes, one said no. What was startling and shocking was the animosity, I mean, the nonstop animosity and disrespect shown towards the one professor who said, I believe in a traditional view of marriage, and here's why. And at the point where he quoted the Bible, and he's a bright guy, and I, I wouldn't have quoted it in that context, I mean, the roar of disdained that went up in that room. I, I, it was a two-hour and 40-minute Q&A. And I just thought, I, it, 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 partway through it, I thought, I hope they have guards here. These people are at, I mean, University of Idaho, right? This is a, like, this is this nice middle America place. This isn't like some rabid place where you'd think people would really be anti, you know, traditional type views. But we live in this time where saying this is a good thing, that we should honor marriage, is, is like, it's not just frowned on. And if you want to follow Jesus and follow his will, you have to brace yourself for this. I mean, you have to brace yourself for this. So the, the fourth point, the fourth reason why I think this is so important, so powerful, is, is really simple. Paul says in Ephesians 5, when he's doing this long discourse on marriage and, ha and, and how husbands should treat their wives and wives should, should relate to their husbands, he says that marriage is this profound mystery that, that so, there's some connection between marriage and between Christ and the church. That marriage is this mystery that reveals God's love and what a relationship with Him is meant to be like. And so when I look at marriage, I, I, I'm often, when I, when I marry couples, I, I'll ask them, can I make some comments about marriage? You know, like there's, there's like, you know, like a little sermonette in the middle of the wedding ceremony. They kind of look at me like, what? <laughs> We've been to church. We know how long-winded you can get. <laughs> This is not a Catholic wedding here, all right? 
And I go, no, just a short little thing. But one of the things I tell people is, it's, it's so hard to get people to believe that a relationship with God is something beyond a bunch of rules. That, that faith is, is more than the don'ts. And my point is, is every time you go to weddings, there's lots of things that move you. Because people, I, I cry. I don't, I've never been to a wedding I didn't cry at, ever. And it's just a moving thing. And one day I realized, not everybody's crying, but a lot of people are crying here. What's, what's going on here, you know? Uh, there's even, most of the guys are crying here. And I, I realized, it struck me, I thought, well, this is what Paul was talking about. There's a picture, a revelation of God and what he wants it's not just about the two people. It's this thing, like we, we talk about the cross. There's this revelation of, of the relationship God wants to have with us, too. That's in this beautiful picture. And most people look at faith as this negative, obligatory, burdensome thing. And unless you're in the South and it's a shotgun wedding, marriages, people aren't getting married for that reason right? They're getting married because they see something in that person that has captured their hearts and that they want to experience life for the rest of their life with that person. And Paul says that the picture of marriage, the way marriage works best is is if both people submit to one another and the husband loves the wife the way Christ loves the church and and the wife respects her husband. But that part where Paul says the way a husband is supposed to love his wife is the way Christ loves us, that he gave his life up for us. That that is the picture that marriage carries that makes it, that's the main reason why it should be honored. Because no other picture, according to Jesus himself and all of his apostles and all the writers of the Old Testament can portray that except a man and a woman, Mary. And that God inhabits as men and women the two parts of his unique nature. They both carry the image of God. They come together. God is revealed in that. And then he's revealed in the self-sacrificial love that he calls forth from that relationship if that's how the people live. So, anybody who's been married knows that it's hard. It's hard. It doesn't take very long for you to figure that out, right? And I've had people say this to me. Why is it so hard, John? Why is marriage so hard? I mean, I, I really love this person. What makes it so hard? And sometimes they look at me, and I know what they're saying. They're saying... I want you to say something to my husband or wife because they're, they're, they're the problem. Do <laughs> you get that? And, and they're actually saying that. And other times they're just going, why is it so hard? I mean, I'm attracted to them. I want this to work. Why is it so doggone hard? Because we're, we, we are sinners. Even as believers in Jesus, the, 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 the Apostle Paul, who was the, the greatest proponent of who we are in Christ, that we're, we're the righteousness of God in Christ, at the very end of his life, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. In 2 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst. Because I persecuted Jesus' bride. I killed Christians. I hounded them all over the place to... to Ruin their lives. And he still admitted how the struggles he had with anger and, and all kinds of attitudes. We are turned in on ourselves. That's what makes marriage hard. But God says, I will inhabit, if you'll let me, I will inhabit this sacred space between a man and a woman. And he inhabits it by laying down his life for us. And says, that is the basis of what I 
created marriage to be. And that's where my love will pour into the lives of two people who will willingly admit our lives are bent in on ourselves. And without your help, we will never be who you meant us to be. That's the good news. That's the good news for every individual. That's the good news for every marriage. So I want to ask you here today, you know, your marriage may be really hard. God has resources for you in Jesus where if you open up your life to him, even if your partner isn't ready to do that or doesn't want to do it or has said no uncertain terms, I will never do that. There's people in our church who said that. I've heard, I heard them say it, and they're following Jesus now because they saw the changes in other Christians' lives. But this grace, that word you hear about, that we sing about, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that's meant to be something we experience, that we experience in our marriages. But we, we only experience it when we're facing the fact, as, as, as Tim Keller says, that we are more sinful and lost than we could ever imagine but we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dream of. And so into your heart today, Jesus wants to enter. He wants to come in. He wants you to taste that grace that he laid down his life for you so you can begin to lay your life down for your spouse or just for other people if you're single. That's the best way for all of us to live. But you're not going to do it on your own because you're as selfish as anybody else. And only Jesus can give you the power to overcome that innate self-centeredness that ruins everything, that ruins every cake, ruins every party, ruins every life. That Jesus willingly took all that on himself, all the mess that we made, he took it on himself on the cross. And he says, I died to give myself away for you because you wouldn't give yourself away to others. So I bore the penalty of that. And if you give yourself to me, I will turn your life around. I'll make you a new person inside, and your life will begin to take a new trajectory. It will take a completely different direction. If you keep following me, that direction will accelerate, and it will intensify. That my spirit and my work in your life will take you where you never thought you could go, and you never would go on your own. So 